Hi there, this is How to Choose, the show that helps you make better decisions and improve your judgment. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ken. And I'm Tessa. And what was that musical introduction, Ken? Yes, I'm glad you asked and noticed. That is the sound of today's guest, the wonderful percussionist, music teacher, and author of How to Get Good, Suf Barras, who was playing an instrument I'd never heard of before called the handpan on his new album. How beautiful is that sound? So lovely. And I'm also not familiar with it at all, despite being a failed percussionist from primary school. So <laughs> lots to learn. They didn't have a handpan for the little kids to play at your school. <laughs> uh, we, had, we had saucepans. I think that was about it. Well, listen, let's take a listen to what Suf has to say about music decisions and the journey to get good. Welcome to How to Choose. Today we're chatting with Suf Barras, who is a professional ma- musician. I almost said magician, but maybe <laughs> we'll find out more as we that go. That might be revealed later, Ken. Yeah, that's yeah. right. The big reveal. Also a teacher and an author. So Suf, welcome to How to Choose. Thanks for having me. Very glad to be on the podcast. Now, I'm going to start by saying I'm a little bit jealous because both of you are in warm climates and I'm in Canberra today and it's cold and wet. And I know some people will unfairly say, well, Canberra's always cold and wet. And that's not true. Sometimes it's cold and dry. Sometimes it's cold and windy. Um, for many months of the year, it's cold and the air is full of hyperallergenic pollen. So it's not always cold and wet. But Suf, I'm interested to know, how did you come to be in Brisbane and teaching music? Because I know that you've had an interesting life journey that's led you to where you are today. Yeah. Well, I um, so my, my family originally is from Israel. I wasn't born there. I was actually born in uh, Mountain View, California. So my, my family actually left Israel uh, before, before I was born and my older sister and lived in Texas and then in, uh, and then in California where I was born. And then my dad worked as a consultant in, uh, in IT and they left California and went to Thailand for a couple of years and then to Singapore for a couple of years. And then from Singapore, they moved to Melbourne. We lived in Melbourne for about three years. So we, we got here when I was about four. And then, uh, and then from there, we moved to Brisbane, did a big trip through, uh, through central Australia, all the way up north, and then, uh, and then came back down through the east coast. For me, music was something I always did. I was always banging on pots and pans and things like that as a kid. There's family videos of me uh, dressed up as a consultant in a tie singing Mbop by Hanson. Um, <laughs> so it was, always, it was always something that I was doing. And... And uh, I, I got into it. My parents actually took me to a, a teacher when I was four, tried to find me a teacher when I was four. And we came across a, a man named Ivan who, you know, all the other teachers go, you know, parents think that their kid when they're four is amazing. Every parent thinks their kid's incredible, but not a lot of them are willing to accept a really young kid to, to learn. And Ivan was one of those people that was willing to. And he said, when I was a young kid, I had a teacher who was willing to teach me and it's my opportunity to pay it forward. So I started learning hand drums. I started learning Daruka. Uh, Middle Eastern drums. From there, my dad and I came across African drumming, did a lot of African drumming. We've still done that up until now. We we went a couple of years ago and spent five weeks in Guinea in West Africa together, studying and, and playing those drums. So we've been doing it for a very, very long time. And obviously, you know, we, we moved up to Brisbane and I've, I've gone through the Education Queensland instrumental music program from grade five, all the way through to a, a tertiary degree in classical percussion. And uh it's been it's been wonderful. Well, that's quite a journey, and I know that along the way you've written a book uh, called How to Get Good, and we'll put a link to to that also in the show notes. Um, but the title was taken from a kind of humorous expression that you came across, where one kid would be complaining about how hard something was, and their friend would just say to them, "Get good," um, and it's yes. kind of <laughs> it's kind of a mildly sarcastic way of saying the obvious, right? You're sad because you're not good enough, so just get good. But I think yeah. uh, I think you identified something quite profound about that statement, didn't you? I did. I mean, I, I uh, the idea for the book started as a joke with my students. I, I teach at a, at a high school and I teach a little bit in tertiary, in a tertiary environment as well, but, but mostly through high school was the inspiration for the book. And I realized that a lot of the times telling someone to get good really is, is non, you know, it's non-feedback, but at the same time, it has the acknowledgement that the tasks that people are complaining about to be difficult and it says like it's a realization that yeah complaining is okay and it's totally fine to to acknowledge that something is not going the way that you want it to but you actually have to do the work to to improve yourself you can't just expect it to be easy really and that and that really was the realization when people say get good you you interpret it as a sarcastic comment and you just kind of throw it away but actually has a lot of meaning behind it 
You've obviously gotten good at a lot of things yourself. Can you just list some of the skills you've developed using your model? Oh, my. That's a really interesting question. I, I was talking with a friend about this recently, and she said that it's kind of a, a realisation that I've been using the model in, in my life up until now. I mean, as an instrumentalist, a lot of things. I, uh, I started learning guitar and singing. Percussion as a, as a family of instruments is not just one thing. It's not just drums. It's a lot of, like I, I did classical percussion, so it's all the orchestral family of instruments, timpani, xylophone, marimba, um, and every one of those things has nuance and uh, is slightly different from the other things. As a kid, I played a lot of basketball. I was, was in regional teams playing basketball and played a lot of club and a little bit of representative basketball. That's an extensive list already. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's lots of other stuff. I think teaching is one of those things that I've learned a lot about. I don't know if it was necessarily something I was good at at the beginning, but I definitely set out to, to get better at it. And it was something that I acknowledged that I didn't yet have the skills for and dedicated a lot of time to really fine tune a system for it. And, and writing the book was in a sense, a way for me to do that, to test out how uh, how those ideas work and whether I can apply them to the teaching environment with my students because I take ensembles and and teach individually as well. Teaching is definitely one of those things. And I'm still learning, you know, like I say in the book, it's good is something that's, you know, it's a personal measurement. So whatever you decide that good is, you're, you're always aiming to achieve your desired good. And then even if you desire it, like even if you achieve what you desire, then you can always keep adjusting it and and pick a new one and work towards that as well. Yeah, get gooder. Get gooder, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the Ken and I are both uh, former teachers as well, and I think we can both uh, share a lot of you know th- those kind of experiences. The, the classroom is almost a natural science experiment because yeah, you have totally. this constant feedback loop, new students all the time, people learn with different prompts. But it's, yeah, it's a fantastic way to test the ideas of a book like this because you're trying to get everyone better, to make everyone get good. Uh, and so you've really had an opportunity to, you know, to test test this model over and over again. Yeah, it's been it's been an interesting experience, really, because the in some ways approaching it with a with the phrase that the kids recognise is great because it breaks down kind of like a barrier of feedback. I think you know you might you probably would have had these experiences when you when you're offering advice and suggestions to students. Sometimes there's a a wall, and you want to break through that not by force, but but by invitation in some ways, you know, if you have to, if you're going up against resistance, then they won't, they won't respond to the things that you're saying. So if you can find a way in where they let you in, then information flows a lot freer and they understand it from their own motivations. So that was one big advantage of it. Yeah, there's a lot of cunning and stealth in teaching <laughs> um, to do it well. Listen, much of the philosophy of, of getting good rests on having a clear goal. And I yes. really liked that, that in the opening pages of the book, you offer an out clause that really caught my attention that if you don't genuinely want or need to get good at something, don't. Dedicate your energy to maintaining your current state or something else completely. So I really, I like that. And Tess, you were thinking about that as well, weren't you, when we, when you were reading? Yeah, very much so. That, you know, we're all, we're all busy and to get good, you actually have to, you know, it takes discipline and time. And and as you'll explain during this interview, that it's it's this is not a uh, a hack. There's no kind of like two steps to get good at anything in two days. You know that it, it is about discipline. So if you're not willing to actually put the work in, then this isn't the book for you. For sure, yeah. And and it's also um, I think I set out to write it in a way that also acknowledges that it's okay to also change your mind. Like late, later on, one of the chapters of conflicting priorities is totally that, you know, you select the things that you want to do and life happens, you know, for, for us as older people, you know, not, not students, but, but as people who have lives and, and families and, you know, hobbies and things like that, things happen and uh, you have to find ways to timetable your desires into it and, and do the work, like you were saying, yeah. On, on the point about desires, what advice do you have for listeners who do, you know, genuinely want to get good at something, but just don't necessarily have direction yet. And I'm sure teenagers, I, I was in that state. I've, I'm a failed percussionist myself. I learned drums oh, really? for a few years and then I, I fell away. But what about those people who don't necessarily have that drive and passion yet? Do you have any advice for them? I think just start. Just start. Try things. Try things out, especially for younger, for younger people. Being young is the luxury of time and the luxury of a brain that works and processes information quickly. So just try things, try things out. You might not like them and that's great, 
but give everything a go and and test things out. Like you know, like we were saying, it's a it's a bit of an experiment. Try everything. Desire is something that that you've got to give it a go. The moment you talk yourself out of it, then it's not going to be as entertaining or as a fulfilling experience than if you give your brain time to explain why not to do it. It's always worth just trying it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Our lives are long, longer than we think they are when we're young. Because as a, as a proportion of our life, you know, when I'm 16, as a proportion of my life, dedicating six months to something is a long time. But when you're like, you know, 50, six months is like, yeah, you know, six months. Yeah, your sense yeah. of proportion changes, doesn't it, over time? And also uh, advice we've given listeners in in season two in particular, we're looking at different professions and particularly people who are, you know, even adults who are thinking of doing a major change. The advice that we got from so many professionals is that you just have to try, go and volunteer, you know, put yourself out there because you're not actually going to know if it suits you, if it will become a desire until you actually go out and do it. So I think good, yeah. good advice at any age. Yeah, for sure. Goals is a really big part of the book as well. Uh, and I want to reiterate uh, to our listeners, you know, we've talked about this before, how how important it is for goals to be measurable. In episode nine of our first season, we talk about the power of habits and kind of go into that a little bit. But can you talk about how you might make a really big goal, you know, like, you know, getting great at drums or running a marathon, more achievable through breaking it up into smaller parts? The example I gave in the book was basketball, but but drumming is a great one, I, I think, as well. There's a wonderful, and, and I, I'll send you this with, with credit to a good friend of mine, Wayne Katz. He created a wonderful Venn diagram of drum kit mastery. I don't know if it's quite a Venn diagram, but it's just like a big, big plot chart of like what drum kit mastery is and all the elements that it's built up. But skills, basically, the focus of, of, of my book was skills. But to develop a skill, everything is broken down into smaller things. The, the ability to play drums can be divided into so many different categories. You know, the first one mainly being independence. We have four limbs and to play the drum set, for example, you have to find ways of applying all four limbs to creating the sounds that you want. So generally we start off with the two hands working together in sequence and then we build independence with each hand doing separate things and then things where our feet and our hands work together. Ultimately, we look at drumming as some kind of vision of the future. You know, you look at great drummers and you go, I want to be able to play like that. But each one of the things that they play can be broken down into smaller ideas. How fast can I move my hands? How fast can I move my feet? Can I play my right hand and my right foot together? Can I play sequences of my right hand and my right foot following each other? and vice versa across all those combinations. And then ultimately trying to combine those into playing grooves, into playing drum kit fills, into playing with other musicians, into improvising, into transcribing music, into playing different styles of music. So we look at skills as something that's that's a really big thing. I wanna learn how to play this instrument. And playing that instrument is fantastic. And even the people that we look at as masters and we wanna play like them, even they are looking at, at their instrument as something that is a, it's a never-ending goal. We're always going to get better at it. We're always going to be finding things that we can't do and other people can do as a motivation for growth. So my, my advice for it is if you're looking at, at growing a skill, break it down into small things, the smallest of things, the smallest of things. Before you even look at playing drum kit as a, you know, playing grooves and doing big solos or anything like that, the first step is hit a drum. Make one sound with one hand on the drum and repeat that and repeat that until you can do it without thinking and then add the next thing and then keep doing that until you can do it without thinking and then go between those things and repeat them until you can do them without thinking and then etc etc until it snowballs and you have a collection of things that you can already do and you're building on the skills that you have yeah that's great advice and it, it you're really emphasizing yeah, really that good. That in point, as, as Tess said before, you know, you can't hack your way to this in two hours. There's there's a bit of a, you know, let's be realistic and, and see this as a process rather than a, an event that you can just, you know, do a marathon session over a couple of weeks and suddenly be fantastic. So I think that's really, it's helpful right. advice. And when it comes to goal setting, obviously, you've got to set realistic goals for your ability. And you talk about how, you know, having a, a self-rating is actually really important as part of this process. But yeah. you know, we're, 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 some of us are quite bad at, at uh, having that self-reflection. So, what do you what do you do to to ensure that you're having an accurate view of w- where your skill level is, where you're starting out? On self-rating, I think a lot of us have a tendency of 
we look at self-rating as a sense of judgment in some ways. And there is fear from doing that because we think that if we judge ourselves, then our worth lowers because we haven't achieved something. So the way that I look at it, first and foremost, is that your achievements aren't you. What you manage to what you manage to achieve or what you don't manage to achieve isn't a reflection of you as a person. You're still a great person, regardless of that. And and setting out to to develop yourself and grow yourself and grow a skill base is a wonderful thing. It'll only bring good things into your life. It might bring frustration and and it might be a big commitment of time and effort. And you might find out that it wasn't worth it at the end of it. But even those experiences are valuable later in life. The way I look at it is self-rating is be be as honest as you can with it and remember that even if it takes time, you will improve in some ways, in some ways. And, and, and in the part of setting the goal, set yourself an out. You know, you might say, I'm going to dedicate three months to this. And if I can't achieve this measurable task by the end of the three months, I'm done. You know, I'm out. And, and that's fine. And that's okay because I think that there's a great book by Seth Godin called The Dip, which I would highly recommend reading, which talks about, you know, entering projects and things like that and how you set yourself an out clause. Because there is a there is kind of like a point of diminishing returns that you get to when you're developing skills or committing to projects. And for some things, you might get to a point where it's like a commitment of resources to a to a failing course of action. Basically, we get to a point where you're not going to get any better results from this point if we continue the same course of action. And it's fine to have it out from there. So yeah, I, I think on the rating system, it's very important because it keeps us honest. It's quite funny, actually. I, you know, With my students, I've been doing that with ensembles. I take percussion ensembles and I ask them, okay, we played this piece last week. What would you have given us as a rating as an ensemble last week? And rarely do they give themselves a rating under seven which they're always very kind to themselves. And it, it, it sometimes is depending on age. The younger students are very honest. They'll be like, oh, it was a two. I was like, guys, come on. Like, you made it from the beginning of the piece to the end of the piece. And if you fell off, you got back on. We finished all together. Like, that's fine. You know, or some kids will like not play for half of the piece and they'll go, oh, I reckon a seven. And you go, buddy, you weren't playing for half the piece. <laughs> you know? So it's... um. I think there's value in having people that you trust around you that that can give you that feedback as well. It, it keeps us honest and it's a reminder that we're still good people even if we didn't do as well as we thought we did. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, and your point about uh, sort of an out clause uh, reminds me of a point from your book and I'll quote you now. How you allocate your time is a choice. This whole concept of conflicting priorities is all about choice. The things you dedicate your time to will be maintained or developed. Things you don't won't. This kind of goes into opportunity costs, which we've covered in previous episodes, episode eight, season one, stay or go. But I think it's a point that is really worth reiterating that when you're choosing to get good at something, you also need to realize that you're choosing not to invest that time in something else. And I guess on on that point, you, you've sort of gone into it a little bit of, you know, deciding when to quit or, yeah. you know, how to choose between two major goals. And I think you've, you reflect in the book a little bit, which would be useful to share with listeners how, how you personally have made those decisions about choosing between two things to get good at. Yeah. So, I mean, something I love doing is playing basketball. I, I haven't played it for a very long time and I would love to do it, but I just don't have time for it. I'm a professional musician. I, I teach, you know, I teach three days a week. I choose my, my family. Like my niece just stayed over last night, came over for a sleepover. So, you know, like my family's a choice, my friends are a choice, my compositions and things like that are, are valuable to me. And, you know, I, I love basketball as something that I want to improve and, and something that I want to enjoy, but there are things that are more important to me. And it's fine. It's fine. When I have the opportunity to play basketball, I go and I have fun. I find the satisfaction in, that I get from basketball in other avenues of my life. And I think that's, that's also, I think, something that you're getting at we set out to achieve goals and, and, and to, to follow particular desires because of other things. We want to feel a certain way. We're looking for accomplishment in certain avenues of our life. So if, if I can achieve that same accomplishment in that part of my life that I want, not from playing basketball, then it's okay if I don't play basketball. If I'm getting that, you know, if I'm, if I'm building myself physically and I'm going to the gym, 
in the gym, I can do it in times that are more available for me than playing social basketball. I'm still uh, achieving my health goals. I'm still doing something that's good for my mental health. I'm still being sociable. I still interact with people. I'm still training my muscles. I'm still, you know, all, all those kinds of things. I'm achieving that in a different avenue of my life. So there's also not being precious about the particular method of achieving that, you know, higher purpose, I guess. Yeah. So it's a bit of a focus on on the why rather than the how, which I think is is yeah. really useful for a whole range of goals and, and goal setting, isn't it? You can get very focused on the process and then forget about why you were doing it. So yeah. listen, just to jump onto something else, and we've touched on it a little bit, I, I think self-confidence is is a really interesting thing and it has such a big role to play in decision-making. And yeah. you know, the extremes are being overwhelmed by doubt and then never trying something or having way too much self-confidence and then aiming for goals that are unrealistic. But one of the most encouraging things for me as a parent, I've got three teenage kids this year, is to see how my daughter Emily has grown in confidence and her music teacher has played a really big role in that. We had parent-teacher interviews the other night and it was just exciting listening to her talk about my daughter and how well she's doing. So that's something I just, you know, how do you, because I'm, I'm listening to you thinking, I would like to have had you as a teacher. Um, oh, I, I have you. a I have a sense that you would be as someone who really uh, inspires your students. How do you manage that in both your students and sometimes also dealing with parents who might have their own goals and be trying to live vicariously through their kids? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. In terms of my students, I remember what high school was like, and I had a great experience. I had I had amazing teachers, and through university as well, I had amazing teachers. The biggest teacher, and I and you know, she will listen to this and I say this with, with so much love to her, is my mum. My mum's a special education teacher and a life coach. So a lot of the things that I pass on to my students, and I think a lot of the things that I wrote down in the book are a result of the things that she taught me in my life. And my dad as well. My dad also, you know, my dad also is a life coach and all the things that they, they went through in their life coaching course, they passed on to us as, you know, to my sisters and I um, as kids. As a teacher, I remember what it was like being a kid in that environment. And to me, my purpose with all of my students, and I I think uh, the teachers that I appreciated very much in high school would have shared this idea is my purpose as a teacher is for you not to need me anymore. Mm. My my, my purpose is to give you the skills that you need to not need me. Education in a a lot of sense is self-cannibalizing because if we give the students the skills that they need to develop themselves, there's no need for teachers anymore. The only reason the only reason we still have a job is that more kids keep getting born and going through the education system. Te- teachers will always be needed in that sense. But I see that role. I see that role in, in not necessarily passing on skills for the specific thing that I'm teaching, like, you know, percussion. But I always saw music as an avenue for teaching personal skills and, yeah, and, and providing a safe space for people to explore things and build their confidence. I definitely resonate with that experience of of kids that don't feel confident with themselves and hold themselves back and feel very self-conscious about doing things because they they might get told off. I don't know if it's a uniquely cultural thing in Australia or it's everywhere, but for sure is is something that happens a lot. But yeah, my my approach to it is not every kid is there for the subject that you're teaching, but at the end of the day they go out into the world being human beings. And they need to be able to maintain life in that sense and to choose. Like, you know, the, your, your podcast is about choosing. You know, you're at school to get an education and, and, and to understand different avenues of life. And you might not use all of those things afterwards, but to remain there and make the most of it is a choice. And for teachers, I think the choice is in remembering that it's not about us as teachers. Like our, our worth as teachers isn't measured by students being in our class. It's it's more about the people that they become rather than the results that they produce, in some way, and and in a weird way, if we release if we release our desire for their results to be amazing, then their results will be really great because we will acknowledge them as people. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. As Tess and I are both nodding, we can certainly relate to that as teachers as well. If I can segue a little bit, it's not too far off the topic, but uh, I'm going to share a story, Tess. You know, you probably are not aware of this, but. I have actually done some public performances myself in the past. I've sung at a few weddings. Now, I will say that the people who who decided to invite me to sing at their weddings may have been a little misguided, misled about my what they were going to get. Oh. Uh, I was very cheap, free actually, 
But uh, yeah, seeing with a friend of mine, Scotty, who I know listens to the show as well, and we had a lot of fun, but there were certainly times where we were extremely nervous. We were aware of the magnitude of the occasion and were based, you know, were quite terrified. I can remember one time where the guy running the audio made a mess of it and turned down one of us. And so, you know, the the reality of nerves can be quite crippling at times. Have you, and I'm asking you now sort for a story, have you ever been in a situation where you've had a horror performance where things are really going wrong and you just want to disappear off the stage? And oh, then, yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> and how do you manage that? And it, not just the impact at the time, but the potential impact going forward, where you imagine what might go wrong uh, next time you're up there. Oh, this is great. <laughs> I appreciate this as an opportunity. I've been dealing with this for the past like month and a half. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the most mer- that, that hasn't happened to me a lot. I, I'm very lucky in the sense that I've been I've been exposed to performances for a lot of my life. But when it has happened, it's had very strong impact on me. So in, in Brisbane, they just finished the production of Hamilton, the musical uh, at QPAC here in Brisbane. So I was on board as the deputy percussionist. I was I was covering the percussionist that was playing the show um, wow. for a couple of for a couple of shows, which was a, a real privilege. I mean, it's a you know it's an international musical and such a big sensation. And, you know, yeah, that's very, it was super exciting. Very like an incredible experience, and I'm I'm so honoured. I was so honoured to to be in that position. And it's a very, it was quite a demand, like quite a demanding role in the sense that the, the percussion part cues click track for all of the band. And sometimes that cueing of the click track, not only cues click track for the band, but it cues sound effects that are played out to the audience that are part of the music. So if you know, if you know Hamilton, it's pretty much nonstop music. The, the band is playing all the time. Um, and that responsibility for the click track is the percussionist's role. So I was coming into that, the percussionist, she's played, She's played the entire Melbourne season. She she was coming off the back of like 300 shows. So she's very, very well versed in it. And, and for me, I was completely new to it. So I I actually had a, I actually got given a, an opportunity to play a show to cover her and on one of the songs that I, one of the songs at the beginning of the song, the click track starts and the, and the percussion part starts. And it was something that I'd been practicing and wanted to make sure I was getting right. And I just went, started the song and I got the tempo right. And as I, was playing it, I realized that I hadn't placed the click to start the beginning of the track. Oh no. So, and I was, you know, and immediately my body just went, what is happening? And it's, and I, I totally get what you're saying. You know, it's, it's one of those situations where I think a lot of people experience you, you experience fight or flight. Like, what do I do in this situation? Like, I just want to disappear right now. I don't want to be here at all. Like I've I've brought dishonor on my family, <laughs> I've brought I've brought absolute dishonor on myself. That's I mean that's that's the feeling it was. I was like yeah. I'll never work. You know that's the feeling of like I'll never work again. Yeah. Like I'll never I'll never be accepted in this situation again. Like I can't show my face. Yeah. So a, a feeling of so much shame. But you know it was like the the like you know first quarter of the second act. You know the show's still going, and I need to finish the piece as well. Um, and I feel like for the rest of the show, I just went into manual mode. Like my, my brain brought up ideas and there was like, there was a, a little figure in my brain, just like with a tennis racket, just slapping thoughts away going, we're closed. He's got to focus on other things. There's no time to feel emotions. Play, <laughs> play, play the music. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I mean, and and I got through it, and I finished the show, and you know, and everybody came up to me afterwards, and they were like, "Whoa, dude, are you okay?" I was like, "Yeah, look, I'm I'm so sorry for it." And they went, "That's fine, man. You know, it's Tuesday nights. Everybody plays a bit bad on Tuesday nights. Like, it's a hard book. Yeah. We made it to the end. You know, it happens. And uh, it took it took me quite a while to release that. I, I held onto that for at least two or three weeks, but it yeah. happens. Yep." It happens. And I'm still alive. And, you know, the production was still happy with me. And, and you know, they got me back to do another tech run. And mm. the the assistant MDs invited me to play another show. And, you know, I, I'm still working. Yeah. It totally, it totally happens. And it's a bit of managing, isn't it? Because your own feelings about things can often be quite distorted. And, you know, they represent part of reality. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, and we all go through these things, you know, we, you've got to decide what you do with them, don't you? And, and do I ignore what everyone else is telling me in favor of what I want to believe about how bad something was? 
or do I just get on and, and get on with life and keep moving forward? Because it, it happens to everyone. I was talking to a friend about this recently, and especially in the realm of performance, there's that concept of what we as performers look at as the good. Like I think when we perform in front of audiences as well, and I think as teachers, you know, we feel that way as well. We want we want to provide a, a product that is of the highest quality for the people that we're serving, um, because there is an audience, you know. So there's that desire within ourselves to produce something that is of the highest quality, and because we understand the things that we're doing, we understand where we make mistakes. And I think for a lot of us, there's the misunderstanding that the people that are experiencing this experience don't know what we're doing. They're unaware of the skill that's required and they're unaware of the nuance of the things that we're doing. So for example, being on stage and make, like for me, making those mistakes in the pit, I went afterwards and saw friends of mine who were sitting in the audience and they were like, dude, that was incredible. And they had no idea that I had made those mistakes. So there's a sense of good, how I see good, and there's also the measurement of good enough for the people that that I'm producing this for. And, and sometimes I'm producing this for myself and what I'm feeling is the most important thing. But if I'm creating something for other people and I'm servicing other people, if what I've done has helped them, you know, escape from their world and experience a different emotion and feel positive and, and have a wonderful night out with their friends, then I've done what I needed to do. I've I've created the service for other people and it's made them feel good. I mean, I'm, I hope that's what you experienced in that wedding as well. Yeah. And, and guess what? The reality was those two people who were getting married were not ultimately thinking about the music, right? Yeah. <laughs> They're thinking about the fact this is the biggest day of our lives. We're thinking about each other. We're getting married. And at the end, they were really happy. And, yeah. and I was so embarrassed. And, you know, again, it took quite a while for me to realize nobody really cared about that, Ken. It wasn't all about you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it, it's a weird feeling. It's a weird feeling because we, we experience ourselves a lot. Yeah. We're the stars of our life movie, aren't we? We're always, That's it. That's we're the always phrase. the star. <laughs> yes. I love, I love that phrase. I think it's, I think it's so beautiful. Mm. Yeah, I've got a, a half a dozen examples that I could share that the exact same feeling where your heart sinks and you're just like, my life is over. <laughs> I think you do lose yeah. you lose perspective in the moment, but it is really important, I think, to move on. And you've yeah. sort of described how you managed to do that. And, you know, to Stephen Covey's point of circle of influence versus circle of concern, there's no point sitting in that circle of concern when you can't do anything about it. You can't change past. Your circle of influence is to learn from the mistake and go, okay, I'm not going to do that again. That was really painful. I'm going to make sure that I practice, that I, you know, put it into my muscle memory so that situation doesn't happen again. And I'm going to be a better performer because of that experience. So actually thinking, okay, I'm going to choose to move on and be better. I'm going to get good based on that, you know, emotionally traumatic experience. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Shifting gears a little bit, uh, I really like your point you made about Say, for example, you have a four-hour math assignment. You could choose to just smash it out. Okay, I've got time this evening. I'm just going to do my four-hour math assignment. But it's actually not ideal for all types of practice and to get good at different things. So when it comes to, say, probably the drums or exercise, if you do a four-hour workout, it's actually going to be detrimental to your improvement. Well, I'm just interested in how in the advice you give your students in terms of frequency and duration of practice. Uh, assuming that you're not telling your students to do a four-hour session every Saturday, <laughs> I I have a I think I've been giving a healthy dose of realism working at a school that kids don't practice as much as you recommend that they practice. Uh, as being one of those students as well, uh, but my students generally have an issue with one thing, and that's sight reading, which is a, a combination of multiple skills. It requires them to read music and play their instrument at the same time without stopping. So. The clock ticks. The train train goes down the track and stops for no one. And, and for them, it's a very pre like it's a it's a high pressure situation. But but my recommendation for all of those things is do something, even if it's small, regularly. My my point isn't on dedicating. You know, I I don't think that dedicating long long periods of time to practice is beneficial because their brain needs rest, and also it's not the priority. Um, but I do recommend very highly for a lot of things, what I call time on the instrument. Um, there are some physical tasks when it comes to playing percussion that you cannot 
like I can, I can't teach. Like I can teach concepts and I can be there present and, and, you know, guide their arm and show them particular things with technique. But to be able to feel like themselves maneuver, maneuver around the drum set, they need to internalize that physical movement in themselves. So I, I recommend that they do, you know, as, as much time as they have available to do the task. But they, they shouldn't be doing hours and hours of it. It's not productive after a certain point. It just gets them tired and it gets them frustrated. So I, I give them small pieces. I go learn two lines. And if you can do those two lines and repeat them and do them again and again and again and again and again and again, and again, great. Because in most cases, when it comes to music, if you can do those two lines, you've learned like 80% of the music. And and that's and that's the the you, you know what if ever there was like one <laughs> if there was ever one thing that I feel like was the most valuable thing I've ever taught my students and I teach it to every one of my students it's a it's one of those things where they sit and they look at their sheet music and I go out of ten how much anxiety are you feeling looking at this music and they just see you know ink on paper and they go eleven <laughs> you know and you go well how many bars are there and they go a hundred. And I go, okay, cool. Well, out of those 100 bars, how many of those are rests? They go, oh, well, you know, 30. I was like, great, all right, we've got 70 bars. So out of those 70 bars, look at this first, you know, four-bar phrase. Does that repeat at all? And, you know, we go through that and they realize that, you know, out of 100 bars of a piece of music, they actually only need to learn like 20. Um, so, yeah, back, back to the point on, uh, on, on developing those, those skills and, and, uh, and how much time to practice. I approach it in the sense that frequency and consistency are very important in developing physical skills. Um, variety is very, very important in keeping your interest because if you get bored of something, you're not going to want to do it again. It's also very important in the sense that if you keep playing the same thing over and over again, you'll be great at the first four bars, but you're going to suck at the rest of the pieces of the music. One of the things I love about the book, and if, if people do see the book, is the illustrations by Jess the, the gym junkies analogy of, you know, big body, third legs. Totally. People have that. Like, you know, if, if you skip leg day, you're going to be, you're going to have a great upper body, but you, you're not going to have that support for the rest of your body. So functionally it's not, doesn't serve you as well. Mm. Um, and yeah. And focus, you know, when you're practicing practice, focus on that practice, get rid of distractions. It's not, it doesn't serve you to have your phone there. You shouldn't be on the call with somebody else. Uh, depending on what you're practicing, obviously. Like if you're practicing single strokes, you can do that in front of the TV or listen to a piece of music, that'll help. Yeah, you're talking about focus. I was just going to jump in there, Tess. We chatted recently with a neuroscientist, Dr. Mark Williams, who was very much talking about this, very, very interesting, but he said just the impact of living in an age where there are constant distractions, um, the impact of that on our ability to focus um, and the importance of being disciplined and turning off distractions. So turning off alerts on your phone, blocking off time. He talked about a Pomodoro technique where you say, look, that's a 25 minutes where you focus without distractions um, and then go and do something else. And I've been trying to do that recently. It's been actually quite interesting to see the impact of that focus because we can't multitask. So that's, I think that's good advice that he'd given there too. Yeah. I need to put that into practice as well. My first lesson with every one of my students at the beginning of term one and at the beginning of term two as well was what do you want to get good at? I, and I said, like, what is that? How is that measurable for you? What can I do to help you get there? Along with other responsibilities, you know, if they wanted to get good at sight reading, then that was one thing. If it was drum kit, we'd dedicate more time to that. But yeah, for every for every kid, it's different. The, the kids that are self-motivated or, or at least know what they want to improve at it's a lot more simple to teach them because you go, what do you want to work on? And they go, this, I want to achieve this. I saw this. I saw a person do this. I want to do that, right? We have a vision of the future. We can look at that and we can go, are we there yet? And for other kids, they don't have that. They, they go, I don't know. You're the teacher. You choose for me. You know, you tell me. I, I don't know what I don't know. What I don't know which I think it is in some way a beautiful thing as well, because that, you know, it takes people a long time to, to come to the realization that there are things that they don't know that they don't know. So it's a, it's a balance. Some, some kids know what they want to want to do. And, and it's, you know, it's great. You've given them the vision and they work towards it. Other kids, it takes a little bit more, more searching to find the things that interest them and speak to them in terms of motivation. I mean, you, you've done episodes on habits. You would have, would have talked about atomic habits, 
the book by James Clear. One of the things he talks about is like the balance between uh, having motivation towards something and then having fear of something else. So having both of those things is very valuable in the, the development of habit and skills in that you're not just going towards something, but you have another thing that's motivating you from the other side to improve. So for some kids, they just don't have any motivation from the other side to improve. You don't give them deadlines. They don't have a performance to prepare for. They know that it'll be fine because there'll be some other kid that can come in and cover their part if they're sick or if they're, you know. So it's a, it's a very good question and I don't know if I've entirely answered it. It, it brings me back to the, the start of your model, actually, which is that you need to have the desire to get good before anything else. Because I think what you've just described there is actually the kids who aren't as dedicated in practice are the ones maybe who don't have that really clear end goal of I want to be able to play this piece of music. And so you're in that kind of exploration phase with them and they'll hopefully get there once they figure out what their goal is. Yeah. You probably you probably don't accidentally get good. You might you might accidentally get okay, but you you're probably not gonna accidentally <laughs> get good. I, I guess so, yeah. If they don't have that opportunity to set their set their desire, then they might just be okay, yeah. Just sort of as a bit of a sort of wrap up, um, do you have any general tips? And I, I think you've offered a lot of fantastic insight for teachers. We have a number of teachers that listen to the show, and I think they're going to love this episode. Do you have any general tips for teachers who want to get the best out of their students? The thing I care the most about is remembering that remembering what school was like for you as a teacher, and thinking about the many things that the kids are going through as well, and remembering that that students are, are people and your subject may not be the most important thing for them at all times. And that if they understand that you care for them as people, then there is a higher chance that they will listen to what you say and understand that the, the things that you're teaching them will serve them in their life. That, that's, my, that's my biggest suggestion. I mean, in terms of applying the book, as teachers, we have a role where we can guide students through their own journey of of personal growth in some ways. I'd love for, for students to be able to go through this, through the book by themselves and set their own goals. But I'd also love for, for teachers to be able to go through the process with them as well. We as teachers have the perspective on life to hear what students are saying and offer them alternative opportunities to, to explore different avenues of their goals. Remind kids that school isn't everything. School is there to service their growth as people. And that as teachers, we don't just care about our subjects and the results that the students get, but we care about them using those skills to better their lives and to grow as people. Um, and that that's my hope for the book. And I think it's the most useful application for it. I've, I've been using for it for my ensembles and they've achieved things that in the past have taken me a lot longer to achieve with students and they've achieved them so quickly. This This past year of teaching has been an incredible experience in individual lessons with students finishing their lesson going, I know what I need to do. And I'm really excited about it because I know that in five weeks I have a percussion concert and I'm excited. I want to play this for my parents and I want to show them. I had this with my student this week. He, he said, I know, now I've got five weeks. I know what I need to achieve by each week. And I asked him, how do you want to celebrate this when you do achieve it? And he said, I want to go out for a pizza dinner with my family. And I said, Jen, that's great. That's what you're doing today. You're going home, say, mom and dad, I've set myself a goal. After the percussion showcase, when we've done it, I want to go out for a pizza dinner to celebrate this. And it's a beautiful experience for me as a teacher because it's more just being there for someone and watching them go through their through their journey and, and find find the things that drive them. And, you know, in some way I know I've guided that, but ultimately he can go and use that in his life for other things and celebrate his own growth in different ways. And he can apply it to things that aren't just percussion. He can apply it to his assignments. He can apply it to anything and and become whoever they want to be as a result of feeling supported from the people in their lives that hold authority as well. That's fantastic. I love that perspective. Listen, before we finish, did you want to do a shout out to your students and school community as well? So my, the school community is the Franciscan College's instrumental program in Brisbane. Um, so Padua College, Mount Alvernia College, St. Anthony's, wonderful school. I've been there for, I think it's my ninth year now. So shout out to them. I'm also teaching at the Queensland Conservatorium as a member of sessional staff there. The talk and the drum community, the African drumming community in Brisbane as well, to all of them. Yeah, that's uh, Brisbane's my home turf. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a Brisbane boy, even though I'm stuck in Canberra. So it, it's great to to chat to someone from from Brazil today as well. And and so before we head off, where can people find your book or more information about you? So I, I have a website, sulfbaris.com. If you if you have read the book and you want to send any feedback through, please send me an email. But the book is on Amazon. I do have a page on my website for the book as well. But the, you can buy the book on Amazon. It's available as an ebook and also a, a paperback copy. I'd love to get people's feedback on it, especially teachers. If you if you like the book and you and there are any things that you want to use from the book and you've applied it in any way, I'd love to get feedback from teachers. Or if you're a student and you're listening to the podcast and you're finding a way to use the book, I'd love to hear what people, how people use it, what they've achieved from it. If you're in Brisbane and you want to come watch a gig and have a chat about the book, it'd be awesome. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. I'm definitely motivated to go out and, and get good at a few more things. Uh, yeah. I've also got a nephew who's learning the drum. So I'm going to be sending him this podcast and suggesting he get a copy of your book. But thank you so much for your time today and being part of the show. It's been really, really excellent. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. How interesting was that? What did you think, Tess? Oh, so much in there, Ken. And like listeners may not be aware, but we actually had to edit this down quite a lot. There was mm. so much good content. Uh, but one of the things that really stood out to me was breaking down your skills into components and perfecting them. We actually kind of talked a little bit about this in episode nine of season one, all about habits. Uh, and it reminded me a little bit of the work that BJ Fogg has done on tiny habits, which talks about this too. So this is kind of a combination of the two, I guess, because Sophie's talking about breaking it down and perfecting it, whereas Fogg's work is more about getting into the habit. So how do you routinize things? So you kind of need to put these things together sort of make it part of your life and then perfect each one before moving on to the next. So some really key things there to getting good at anything, really. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It's that element of not just repeating something over and over again, but make sure that you're repeating the right thing over and over again. That's how you're going to get really good, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And he also talks about self-awareness and self-confidence. And I think that's such a key part about it too. Like, unless you are actually able to look at yourself and your own abilities with a clear-eyed sense, you're not actually going to be able to get better because you're not going to give yourself that accurate assessment. And and maybe in some areas, it's actually better to ask an outsider for that feedback if you're not able to, to look at your own abilities in a really clear way. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And somehow still, um, we just want to balance that because, look, it's it's okay to do things that we're not brilliant at. And, you know, rather than sort of self-censoring and saying, oh, you shouldn't shouldn't do that. You're not fantastic. And I remember being in Zambia many, many years ago and just listening to everybody singing. You know, singing was such a beautiful part of life and there was no self-consciousness about it. And I enjoy singing, but it made me realize that, you know, I'm quite self-conscious. I don't walk around singing too much. It's not really a part of our culture in Australia. I'm sure there are listeners in parts of the world where it is a normal part of life. But I think that self-censoring and that embarrassment can often hold us back when we are trying to find out what we might be naturally good at and then practicing and getting really good at it. That is such a good point. I'm in Fiji at the moment, as you know, and every person here can sing. It just seems like, you know, any school group or even in the workplace, people are very happy singing and their vocal cords aren't different to those vocal cords of people in Australia. But I think it really is that practice and you've grown up your whole life singing. So you are naturally going to get better at it. And I think this is such a good lesson for everything that we, you know, if, if you care about it and you enjoy something, then break it up, practice, you will improve. It's worth pursuing that in, in areas that you are actually interested in. And that's obviously a big theme of what Suf had to say, wasn't it? I mean, you don't just get good by feeling sorry for yourself and wishing that you were good, that it, there is a real element of discipline and practice, which is kind of obvious, but it's good to be reminded of that. If you want to get good, put in the effort. Yeah, exactly. Even for something that is a, a hobby, it doesn't have to be you know, your career. If, if you want to get good at your hobby, then it's got to be sort of with a bit of discipline. What other takeaways did you have, Ken? I, I have to say I... I loved and also vicariously um, shivered as he told his story of his horror performance at Hamilton, which we know is a huge production that many people went to see. And to be in a situation where you forget to press start on that track that was supposed to run through. And as he described so vividly those emotions that went through him and how his brain just almost shut down. And I mean, we can all relate to that. We've all been in situations where we just think, oh my God, you know, things have gone terribly wrong. 
But it was good to reflect on that and just to be reminded that sometimes, although we feel a disaster has happened, the people around us may not have noticed, let alone thought it it was a terrible performance. I think that reminder to just keep perspective and also just to pick yourself up and get up and keep going. I thought it was really good, wasn't it? That was, yeah, I think it hit home. Everyone has that that story that you can think of that you still cringe of thinking about now. But I'm sure no one else in your life or at that moment is remembering it at all in the way that you did. You know, we're really a bit part player in this this big journey we're taking. Yeah, absolutely. I love to the reminder we we talked about, you know, at the end, what are some takeaways for teachers as someone who clearly is a very passionate teacher. And I thought it was fantastic that he just reminded us that your subject that you teach, of course, is something that you care about, maybe something that you feel very passionately about. But a lot of the kids you teach won't share that passion, and that's okay. You can still give something really important to those kids by caring deeply about their well-being and about them as people. And I thought that was really good. It's just a reminder to teachers, let's retain perspective. Let's not expect that everybody's going to care about what we care about. But I think if you care about the kids you teach, uh, you'll go a long way towards enthusing them and empowering them. Yeah, I think as a teacher, I could relate to that, but also in the workplace as well. You know, if you're a subject matter expert, sometimes you can you can hold on to your topic like it's your baby. And then when other people don't have the same passion, it can be hard. But fundamentally, I think whether a school or a workplace, it all comes down to relationships and, and putting that at your forefront is, is always going to be a good decision. Absolutely. So we hope this has motivated uh, all of you listeners to take the first step and start getting good at something. And listen, if you've enjoyed this episode, there are a few things you can do. If you want to know more about Suf, uh, you can check out his website. Helpfully, it is sufbaras.com. And if you're not sure how to spell that, you can look up the notes at the end of the show. But also on his website, you can find a link to his book that we mentioned, How to Get Good, and you can have a listen to his great music. But also, check out our website goodbetterright.com.au. There's some good resources and links there as well. And don't forget to hit subscribe to our podcast and write a review if you haven't already. Bye for now.